Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the market, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, the Europe economics correspondent. Coming up on today's show. Will technology disrupt the traditional real estate model in America? I could have done that whole process without ever contacting an agent. I found the property online and I, I went and viewed it by myself. And the rules of management are being ripped up. What does it take to be a CEO in the 2020s? The celebrity CEO often wants to solve all of the world's problems, and that also seems like a recipe for disaster. First, the coronavirus now has a death toll of over a 1,000 people, and quarantine orders continue to be issued around the world. Having remained closed for an extended New Year holiday, businesses in China are beginning to reopen this week. However, as China is the largest export economy in the world, the knock-on effects of the closures will be extensive. Well, Apple announced it is temporarily halting business in China because of the coronavirus. The company says 42 stores will be Shares closed. of Nike after hours. Nike just out giving some guidance around the impact of the coronavirus on its operations. They say it will have a material impact on our operations. In green- and businesses such as the biggest car makers are dealing with dwindling supplies as a result of the closures. South Korea's biggest automaker, Hyundai Motor Group, is gradually suspending assembly lines at its domestic plants due to difficulties receiving components from the company's suppliers in China. So what will be the impact of the coronavirus on the global supply chain? Vijay Vaithisvaran is The Economist's US business editor. Hello, Vijay. Hi there. We've mentioned car manufacturers. Who else is being affected by the coronavirus? A number of industries, many global Supply chains for many industries reach deep into China. A good example is electronics and high-tech. Apple's iPhones, for example, and Airbuds, which are hot-selling products, are affected. And some of the growth plans that Apple has uh, will definitely be affected by the shutdown of factories that make those. Uh, Those factories are uh, owned by its vendors, including Foxconn, a Taiwanese firm. And one thing that's changed if we compare the SARS epidemic is that China is now a much bigger supplier of these sorts of parts than it used to be. That's right. It's very common uh, among economic forecasters to use the SARS outbreak of 2003 as a template. But there are uh, several differences between last time and now, between 2003 and today. The most important is that China has become a much bigger exporter and has moved up the value chain, not just simple assembly of bits and bobs, but Chinese vendors are often providing sub-assemblies or other vital parts. In fact, you know, an average automobile may have 20,000 parts, and now China often supplies, companies based in China supply many of those parts, and that makes it integral to the global manufacturing system in a number of industries. 
How have companies outside the mainland been coping with this then? With some trepidation, I must say. Initially, people were concerned, of course, about the virus itself and the health impact for their own employees or the contractors and vendors they deal with. That continues to be an issue. But there's two other issues that are now of concern. One is the policy response. China responded late, but it came down like a ton of bricks with draconian measures that have uh, shut down factories longer than they would have been for Chinese New Year, a traditional holiday period in China. And that is now unfolding as a very slow start. Workers are beginning to return to factories, but most factories are still only at partial capacity. And the longer that happens, the inventory buffers that industries have uh, will begin to run out. To give you a, a sense of how these industries vary, the automotive industry or the pharmaceutical industry, both of which have lots of operations in China, they tend to have 30, 40 days worth of buffers and have some flexibility. On the other hand, the high-tech industry, which has a huge cluster in Wuhan, the heart of the virus, tends to have half that level of inventories and they tend to have more just-in-time deliveries. So they may be squeezed more so than some of the other industries. What do you expect the impact of the virus on the global economy to be? Here, economists are generally relaxed when they look at this. Again, the experience of the SARS virus, there's a Mexican swine flu some years ago, avian flu, generally shows that when you have an outbreak like this, the first quarter, you tend to have a stronger impact, and especially regionally so, in this case, China will be most hit. But once you go out to a sec- the second or third quarter out, you tend to find the effect dissipates and you may even have a bit of a rebound effect. That's what most of the modeling by economists shows. There are a couple of reasons to think this time might be more serious. And one of them is that it's not just the virus itself. There are some unknowns. We don't really know how many people have been infected. And so the lethality rates and calculations are are a little bit fuzzy coming out of China with the numbers unclear. The second reason is the policy response has been much more aggressive in this case than is seen in other outbreaks. And that means if we do see much Uh, longer periods of factory outages, we will see a a more significant impact on vendor output and ultimately multinational output, ultimately economic output, both locally and globally. The third is the panic effect. Pictures of Chinese quarantine officers dragging individuals out of homes to go into quarantine, which people are watching on social media or on uh, the news networks, is leading to a sense of panic amongst some places around the world, unwarranted panic, perhaps. And so you're seeing things like the Singapore Air Show this week and the forthcoming Mobile World Congress, a major get-together in Barcelona, see many cancellations. People don't want to be in places where visitors from China might be. And so you're beginning to see knock-on effects that we didn't see last time in some of the other previous outbreaks. And the thing about those knock-on effects is you might not see a snapback in activity. It might not be the case that if fewer people are going to the shops now, they will buy exactly the same products when they go back once the epidemic is is done. I think that's right. Now, historically, we have seen something of a snapback. It's never 100% of lost consumption. But for example, the red envelopes that Chinese typically get with money during Chinese New Year, they may not have gone out to spend it because of the outbreak. They may very well spend it afterward. That's a reasonable sort of bounce back or deferred consumption. But the massive Mobile World Congress, uh, the telecoms get together in Barcelona, all of the people that don't come to that and the vendors that cancel, they're not going to turn up in Barcelona two months later to do that, for example. So it seems to be a case of hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. That's right. And I think that generally speaking, we need to bear in mind that history sometimes repeats, but 
its rhyming sometimes can lead you down a more pessimistic paths than, than the previous initial refrain. So I think most companies are expecting uh, that things might be a bit worse this time. Thank you very much, BJ. Thank you. And you could read more on this story in this week's Economist. Try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, the influence of technology on the real estate market in America. Seeing an advert for a local realtor is a common sight be it on a billboard, a park bench, or TV. Greetings, Pete Lorimer here of PLG Estate in Beverly Hills. Welcome to the new community at Riverbend Brownstones. Every client that I meet is unique and has different real estate needs, whether it's a growing... Selling homes is big business in the US, but the fees for doing so are extremely high. American home sellers will generally pay about 6% of the value of their property in brokerage fees when they're selling their home. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's US finance correspondent. In most of the rest of the world, these fees will be just 1% to 2%. Uh, like in the UK, they're usually around one5 In Australia, they're 2%. The reason for this might be the commission structure in America. So the way that it works in America is that when a seller agrees to list their home, they state up front the fees that they will pay to both the buyer's broker and the seller's broker. And the commission is usually 50-50 between a seller's broker and a buyer's broker, which means that the overall commission sort of stays at 6%. And in other countries, you've seen commission rates come down as the internet has changed the way that people search for homes. They now do a lot of the legwork themselves. But you haven't seen that buyer's broker commission come down in America, which means that rates in America are now much more elevated relative to the rest of the world. And the gains to fixing these problems are potentially huge, aren't they, just because of the size of the real estate market? So the value of residential real estate in America is $30 trillion, uh, which is comparable to the size of all of the market caps of America's listed companies, so the size of the stock market. And given how high the fees are, given that 6% is sort of normal for a transaction, last year in America, homeowners traded $1.7 trillion worth of property, which meant that they forked over $100 billion in fees to real estate agents. By contrast, in the equity market, which, you know, is roughly the same size, transaction volumes were much higher. Uh, People traded $50 trillion worth of stocks, and they paid fees of just $200 million. So a much more efficient market. What can regulation do to help make the real estate market more like the market for shares? There are important structural differences between the market for stocks and the market for homes. You know, the market for shares, every single share in a company is the same. That means that there are lots of buyers and sellers for every single share. And that makes it easy to have a sort of liquid market with lots of transactions and very low transaction costs, which is how sort of the equity market is characterised. Real estate is very different and every single home is unique. And that has meant that the market has been this sort of very high touch, very high involvement process that requires, you know, a sort of one human being to go out and sort of market properties and match an individual buyer with an individual seller and take this sort of large transaction cost. 
But what you've seen in other countries as the sort of internet has come to sort of influence how people buy and sell properties is that now you can create these larger platforms where people can look at lots and lots of different houses themselves. And so given that buyers can do a lot of the legwork now, you have seen commissions come down in in other developed countries. I think this tying arrangement in the US is sort of precluding that from happening as quickly here. So one thing that regulators could do is would be to sever that arrangement. And that's actually something they're working towards now. There were two class action lawsuits filed against the National Association of Realtors, which is the sort of lobbying group that manages real estate agents in America. They allege that the practice of sellers paying for the buying broker's commission is sort of anti-competitive and forces them to buy a service that they don't necessarily use or want. And then at the same time, the Department of Justice is investigating the NAR and the companies that run the multiple listing services, which is sort of a a platform that real estate agents in America use for sort of anti-competitive behaviour. They're examining whether this tying arrangement between selling and buying commissions is anti-competitive. But what we're also seeing is tech firms getting involved and trying to disrupt the real estate market. Tell us a little bit more about that. Over the past maybe three or four years, you've started to see a lot more investment in real estate technology. As recently as 2012, the venture capital invested in real estate tech was just tens of millions of dollars. So sort of nothing compared to investments in other industries. But that's risen dramatically over the past few years and was $3 billion in 2018 and continues to climb. And what you're seeing is sort of investments go into ways to either make the sort of market more efficient or to make real estate agents more efficient. So on the sort of market side, you're starting to see companies like Open Door or Zillow actually offer home sellers all cash offers for their homes. They can go online, request a quote, and they'll usually get sort of an initial offer back within a couple of hours. The next day, a uh, sort of inspector would go around and look at the home and that sort of offer would be updated if they need any repairs. And they could literally close on the house within two days and get sort of that cash payment for their home. They take a fee of about 6% for that service as well. And that is, you know, competitive with what sellers would pay to list their home uh, with a real estate agent. So, you know, it's taken off in the cities that they've gone into. These buyers, as they're called, these instant buyers are now in sort of 20 to 30 cities across America, and they're quickly gaining market share. Market share in the places that they've gone in is sort of as high as 5%. So that's sort of one way that people are trying to finesse the process of, of selling your home and sort of offer you a quicker and more convenient solution. Another approach is the one taken by Compass. And what they've done is build a big platform of tools for real estate agents to use. And these take some of the drudgery out of the job. So agents will spend a lot of time setting up appointments uh, for home tours. They'll spend a lot of time doing paperwork. And they've built a series of tools that sort of automate a lot of those processes for agents. And they argue that those make agents much more productive and eventually some of those productivity gains might be passed on to consumers in the form of lower prices. Does this technology, particularly the iBuyers, mean that one day we might not have any human real estate agents anymore? That's definitely an interesting thought experiment. When I was in Los Angeles for this story, I actually sort of downloaded the Redfin app. Redfin is one of the big real estate property platforms in America. And I sort of went to this sort of two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica. And using the app, I was able to unlock the door remotely and sort of tour the home by myself. If I wanted to, I could have filled out an online form and made an offer then and there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't live in Santa Monica, so that was not feasible. But um, I could have done that whole process without ever contacting an agent. I found the property online and I, I went and viewed it by myself. 
say that I had bought that home, theoretically in the future, I could have sold it sort of directly to an iBuyer. Redfin actually has an iBuying program as well. So I could have sold it sort of directly back to them. So that would have worked well for that particular property. Unfortunately, iBuyers can't go in everywhere. There are sort of certain markets that are easier for them to market make in than others. So the way their sort of algorithms price homes and sort of allow them to make these offers is they'll sort of look at all of the attributes of your home. They'll look at sort of a thousand different attributes from square footage to the number of rooms to the sort of quality of the finishings, how new the property is, and then they'll compare it to to sort of similar properties in the area that have recently sold. And obviously, you know, the more differentiated the housing stock is, the harder it is to do that. So that's very easy to do in places like Phoenix or places like Las Vegas, where, you know, people live in these cookie cutter homes that are all very similar and there are lots of transactions. It's much more difficult in rural areas or in places like New York and Los Angeles, where they're sort of very differentiated properties. So for some Americans, it may be possible in the future to sort of do this whole process without ever involving an agent. But there are certainly sort of anyone at the tails will definitely probably still need to use someone to help them out. Well, so real estate agents might not need to start looking for jobs just yet. Thank you very much, Alice. Thanks, Bachner. And finally, do you have what it takes to be the boss? Running one of America's 500 largest listed companies is never an easy gig. But on paper, this appears to be a golden age for CEOs. Profits are high, the economy is purring, and pay is lavish. So why are top CEOs complaining that the job is getting harder? Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, and incidentally, my boss, has been investigating. Patrick, how is the nature of a CEO's job changing? Well, one way of thinking about it is how a CEO operates is changing, where the CEO and the company operate is changing, and why companies and CEOs operate is is changing too. And if you take the whole picture, they're being disrupted. So going through those, you know, the original model of a CEO, Alfred Sloan at GM in the 1920s is the famous example. You controlled the flow of tangible capital, so building factories, labor, you know, you kind of controlled where money flowed. And in doing that, controlled a vast industrial organization. But modern companies are becoming very different. So, for example, intangible capital, things like research and development, innovation, brands are becoming a much bigger part of firms' value. And it's not so easy for a CEO to pull a lever, send money towards those things and get good results. Where a company is changing too. So for the last 20 or 30 years, globalize has been the answer. But of course, now the orthodoxy around that is being really reconsidered pretty deeply. And why companies operate, the third thing, is also in flux. So again, for the last sort of 40 years, roughly, shareholder value has been the guiding star of of most CEOs, particularly those in America. But all of that is in flux. You know, politicians want firms to operate for stakeholders. Staff want bosses to pursue social causes. So how, where and why CEOs work is all in flux. And as those demands have changed, are CEOs now drawn from a different pool than they used to be? Well, one of the things is just as the job is being disrupted, the cohort of people sitting in the hot seat is still pretty conservative in terms of of their background. They're often recruited from within the firm, about 80% of CEOs, and usually they're white and male. They studied engineering or did MBAs, again, looking at American top bosses. Now, the demographic is changing, but pretty slowly. So you have an interesting tension of quite a conservative group of people facing quite a big change in how the job works. 
But at the same time, there's also been the rise of a superstar CEO. We know them by their first names. They have a very brash approach. Has that approach proved particularly successful? Well, again, you've got these bosses who are facing a kind of blurring of their responsibilities and power. And one of the tools people are beginning to resurrect is the idea of a celebrity CEO who uses the force of their personality to kind of dominate the organization and its counterparty. So sometimes it works. So you have Satya Nadella at Microsoft who's turned it around over the last couple of years in in emphatic fashion. He likes to talk about empathetic leadership and has sort of put his own persona at the front of the turnaround. The trouble is often the CEO cult doesn't work and Adam Newman, the boss of WeWork, the party animal in chief of that unicorn tech slash office firm, you know, is the classic example of that. And it became a kind of chaos of partying, the finances getting completely out of control. And ultimately, he was ousted at the end of of last year. So the cult of celebrity is a dangerous thing. What does it take then to be a corporate leader in the 2020s? What's the magic skills that are needed? Well, we've tried to think through this a bit. And we came up with three things. I mean, one is this crucial thing of intangible capital. So the majority of of American listed firms, their value sits in intangible assets, but creating intangibles, again, you know, brands, R&D, innovation, is a more collaborative and in some ways more fragile process than building a factory here or there. So a CEO has to be able to think about intangibles and how you create them. Another skill, I think, is data. And, you know, the sheer volume of information CEOs get is enormous. Some of the best companies, Amazon, you know, is able to monitor, I think, 500 metrics at once. But most CEOs are basically sitting there desperately trying to kind of delete their inbox at one minute past midnight every day and are kind of swamped. And the last thing is, frankly, clarity about the purpose. And I think, you know, our view at The Economist as firms should be run for the long-term interests of their owners. That doesn't mean being myopic about things like climate change, but it does mean having a bit of self-discipline about mission creep. And the celebrity CEO often wants to solve all of the world's problems. And that also seems like a recipe for disaster. So less partying and more hard work. Unfortunately, yes. I hope aspiring CEOs are taking note. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks, Rachel. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachna Scharnbogue in London. This is The Economist.